Is it possible that the word religion can't bear up under the weight of what it's supposed to carry in our current discourse today? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with ToddLittleton.net, home of Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm reprising an interview with Greg Horton. It seems a bit timely in light of the current situation in our political election cycle. You may remember, Greg is a religion reporter, religion writer. He is a professor, uh, teaches the humanities, logic, philosophy, and uh, does a lot of freelance work for major Christian publications. Now, take, take some time as you listen back through this interview and connect it with the themes related to the pastor's theologian. What are the tools, resources, what are the things you need to know that might be helped as we carry on uh, our work as pastors thinking carefully? Remember when the podcast is over, share it with your friends. Along the way, that we would get to share a conversation and, of course, uh, as with a few other of my guests, I'm hoping that we uh, find something to talk about in the future. So this isn't just a one-time shot. I met Greg uh, a little more than 10 years ago, and uh, we've been friends ever since. And that includes just uh, you know differences in uh, our course of life. But one thing has been uh, constant, and that is we can... Always sit down and, and share a meal and have a great time. So, Greg, I'm glad you're on today. Hey, good to be here. I'm, I, I enjoy it. It's, it's, I, I expect you're nicer than Trip Fuller, so this should just go well. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting comparison. Yes, I, I, I probably can be. Yeah, I, I think you are. So, but I like him too. It's fine. We'll be we'll be good. Well, um, you know, a lot a lot of people won't know who you are uh, just because I mentioned okay. you're my friend. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Greg Horton? Okay. Um, without giving you the Garden of Eden version, um, uh, Todd and I met because I, I was pastoring at the time. And I believe we were getting ready to go to the first emergent convention back in the day. And so I pastored in Oklahoma City roughly from 1992-3 to about 2006 in various capacities, uh, all the way from uh get the guy that picked up the money on Sunday mornings, finally being senior pastor. Then when Emergent took a, kind of became a thing, I did a few Emergent, well, actually, to be fair, to two Emergent congregations here in Oklahoma City, both um, located in other churches in two different traditions, one Baptist and one Nazarene. Uh, left the, well, I guess I, I did my graduate work at Southern Nazarene, um, left the church and the faith uh, roughly 2007, I guess, 2006. Um, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, I've, well, even at that time, I was adjuncting to teach English philosophy and humanities at a couple of different schools here in Oklahoma City, the metro area at least. And I write, uh, well, a lot. I write a lot for different publications. So how's that for an intro? Oh, perfect. And that's one of the things we want to talk about. Uh, we could talk about a number of uh, subjects. Uh, I've, I've been invited as a guest to one of Greg's uh, classes at OCU and um, uh, sat in another at uh, OCCC just to hang out. And, uh, and so we've got – that's why the future looks uh, bright for a lot of different uh, possibilities. But the one thing that – caught my mind uh, that I want to have Greg on initially 
was uh, Greg is uh, a religion reporter, and uh, that's not his uh, full-time gig, but it is something that he pays uh, careful attention to and uh, is real good at it. And uh, Greg, remind us, you write for Religion News Services and sometimes for who else? Well, that's what that's the deal is. Um, Religion News Service is a wire service, national one, uh, religionnews.com, I believe is the uh, address. And they that they work with, they have staff writers, and they have people like me, which, by the way, in the business we call stringers. Uh, we're freelancers who live in different places, obviously. And so I report on news in Oklahoma that has a religion angle uh, that national or groups would be interested in. So typically what happens with the religion news service is once they publish it, uh, places like the Washington Post and Huffington Post will pick it up automatically depending upon uh, the, the level of interest of the story. And so from there, any, anybody that has access or a subscription to the wire service picks it up. So I would estimate that the stuff that I write for them has been in 30 or 40 large circulation newspapers. Uh, it's certainly been in the news sections of Christianity Today and Christian Century. Um, I think Charisma News one time, and I don't even speak in tons, which is awesome, by getting Charisma <laughs> News. Uh, so, you know, it's just one of those things where we're kind of what you would think of as reporters uh, in a specific location rather than someone who has a staff writer for the organization. Well, you know, I remember when you were writing regularly for the Daily Oklahoman. Yes. And we had a conversation uh, back in that day when all of a sudden, I mean, it it appeared uh, all of a sudden, it may not have been, but all of a sudden uh, religion sections were disappearing from print papers. Correct. You, you remember that conversation? I do. And honestly, I do. And because Oklahoma, the Oklahoma has maintained theirs, and I have always maintained that the two, the two of the best in the absolute country, absolute best in the country, were Dallas Morning News religion section and the Orlando Sentinel. And so, in those days, we were watching large circulation newspapers just give up on religion reporting, which was bitterly ironic in the wake of of nine eleven. Uh, if there was ever a time the world needed to understand religion better, uh, it was certainly after after that event. Um, and certainly with the sort of politics of America today, uh, it's better that we understand religion at a more profound and basic level. So closing religion sections for newspapers seemed uh, just the worst timing in the world. And I think that was sort of the gist of our conversation uh, at that time, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it, it was, and it seems as though that while the major newspapers uh, were shuttling their religion sections, that turned to a boon for the Internet. Um, on, yeah. Online writing and such seemed to be now the place that anybody who wanted some kind of news with a deliberately religious angle would have to get online and either Google or, or, like you said, subscribe maybe to the uh, religion channel Huffington Post or, right. you know, uh, pay attention to WAPO or, or somebody like that. Um, good or bad? G- give us an evaluation. What, what's that meant to the whole process? Uh, terrible. Um, it's like, okay, let's, let's be fair. It's been mo- mostly terrible. There's been some good that's come out of it. Uh, religious, religious, religion dispatches the website. Yes. Uh, uh, and I, I'm, 
I could look some stuff up while we talk here, I suppose. Uh, Religion Dispatches is one of those websites that emerged from uh, that sort of, I don't know, cataclysm, I suppose, in terms of religion reporting. And there's not a lot of places in the world today doing better uh, religion writing than Religion Dispatches. Now, what you're going to get with them are essays and think pieces as opposed to straight journalism. But much like The Daily Show, it has become a place where you can get the details of the news uh, while getting commentary, analysis, angle, spin on the news, which, quite frankly, is better than watching, uh, I don't know, or listening to TMZ or any of these other places that aren't actually doing news. So I, 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 well, I want to say that that has been a, a good thing. Places like Killing the Buddha, uh, Religion Dispatches, I can't even, there'll be a few that come to mind as we talk. Uh, for the most part, religion journalism has suffered as a result of that and it's largely due to a bottom line sort of idea of how you do news uh, quite frankly it isn't just religion we are in trouble news wise in, in every sort of category uh, and trying to figure out how to produce quality journalism while maintaining a bottom line an economic or financial bottom line so religion is the easiest thing to cut uh, because churches had largely moved away from the model that supported newspapers, which was, and you'll remember this probably, Todd, was in our, in our very own Oklahoma religion section, they used to run a Wednesday sheet, right? Yes. And the, the bottom quarter of that page was one of was our Six Flags Over Jesus Church, and they took a, an ad out every Wednesday, and that ad essentially paid for uh, any sort of religion journalism that was going to happen on that sheet. So as churches moved away from the sort of advertising the newspaper model to an electronic model, or other sort of, you know, word of mouth or viral methods, social media, uh, newspapers weren't able to sort of justify religion reporting from a bottom line perspective. But a sane person would say religion isn't a bottom line issue. It is a fundamental issue to the human experience, whether you're a person of faith or not. And to ignore the sort of vast complications that result when religion meets culture, meets politics, meets people, meets family, meets sex, meets all of those things, is to ignore one of the principal things it means to be human. And I found that, and I still find that very distressing. So Religion News Service tries their best to provide uh, quality journalism uh, to newspapers and magazines uh, that really does take covering religion seriously and treats it as you would treat any other form of journalist, verifying your sources, being certain about things, not using anonymous um, uh, material, all of that sort of stuff that goes into actual reporting is what RNS is trying to do today as well. So you have the journalism side with RNS, and you have the sort of religious commentary side with good sites like Religion Dispatches. So on the whole, it's been a 15% win and 85% disaster. Uh, because anybody can comment on the news on the Internet or comment on religion on the Internet. And you as a pastor understand the dangers of letting any person in the pews uh, educate other people about what religion is actually all about. Which which probably means we need to at least give some sort of context for why religion reporting is a value. Certainly your allusion to a post-9-11 world, but, but even before then... Even before you uh, left the faith, for instance, there, there, there's always been this interest in the the connective side of religion and life. And so, for you, what what still makes it a value? What what still makes it something you watch closely? You you keep your ear to the ground for stories, for um, opportunities to you know draw out just that relationship. I mean, why? 
Um, because as I'm a cautiously hopeful human being, um, I, 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 don't, I don't say that glibly. I, I really mean that I'm, I'm hopeful. Even as a college professor, I'm hopeful uh, that there are certain, and don't, don't call me a functionalist here, but there are certain sort of um, institutions in our culture, uh, and that's human culture in general, that can not just function as an organizing principle, but can also make us genuinely better human beings. Religion in its better iterations is one of those institutions. Religion in its not-so-good iterations is the exact opposite of it. And so what I'd like to do is, from the religion perspective as a journalist is flesh out both ends of that spectrum. And you'll know that the last story I did for RNS uh, which was picked up by Washington Post, was that piece on the Muslim-free zone at the gun store shooting range in southeastern Oklahoma. That, to me, is is something that's worth reporting because it's clearly an issue of the civil rights of a particular group being violated uh, in the name of religion. So that's something the public needs to be aware of. Hey, this is happening in your neighborhood, in your backyard. These are your neighbors. Uh, whether you like the Muslim faith or not, these are people that have the same rights and privileges as other Americans. From the other side of the perspective, I teach college every semester. And it's Oklahoma. And so I'm going to go ahead and estimate that at the community college level, at least, where one of my schools is, 75 or 85% of my students are Christian. And at the private Christian school level, and you know, OCU is ostensibly Christian, uh, I'm guessing that a little more than half of my students are actually Christian in any meaningful way. I've actually had lower numbers than that in class, quite frankly. Uh, But it's still part of their life. And so I try to be as informed as possible about, you know, the things that connect us at that level. And religion isn't just a, a set of practices. It's a powerful explainer for people in their lives of of why things happen or how things happen or what they should expect or how, in fact, they should derive any meaning uh, from their lives at all. That requires knowing it not at the level of just belief, but at the level of practice, application, and even this sort of syncretism that happens between a person's faith and their actual life. So I think that answered the question. Oh, very very well, too. And I I think one thing I'd like to just, as an aside, point out, you know, generally speaking... Uh, were someone to hear your uh, intro, your little kind of mini bio, uh, and uh, immediately hear left the faith, uh, the immediate uh, or an immediate uh, reaction would be, ah, he's just a cynic and a skeptic. But what you just described is anything but cynical, anything but skeptic. While certainly you reserve... Uh, room to critique the extremes, you just outlined that um, your interest is actually um, geared toward the the positive ways uh, religion can, may, make uh, uh, our lives or our communities better. It It doesn't require adherence. But uh, I just sometimes uh, shake my head when immediately someone presumes that, that well, you'd just be a rank cynic and skeptic. And that doesn't mean that there aren't those threads. But what you describe is far from that. Yeah, I'm a, I mean, I'm, a, I, I'm an idealist. I'll tell my students that I'm, my, my sort of orientation to the world is idealist. Uh, that makes me a preacher at times. Uh, it makes me a teacher at times. And it makes me a curmudgeon at times. Um, and, I, and I think I'm fine with that because I'd rather be an 
idealist than a cynic. I, I think most people don't earn their cynicism. They just sort of adopt it because it's easier. Uh, and I, I, you know, when you leave the church as I have, uh, and you've seen sort of the fallout of what it means to sort of, you know, recategorize your, your life, one of the questions people consistently ask is, what happened? What made you mad? You know, what, who hurt you? And it's like, that's always the cynic's response, that something must have happened to trigger this, not that there can be reasonable and good reasons to leave. And the obverse of that, of course, is there can be reasonable and good reasons to stay. And so... Rather than look, treat people like a group, you know, it's better to treat them as individuals. And yet, I, I'm an idealist because I believe that people have the chance to change. They have the ability to redeem their lives. And you know my backstory. Sure. So I, I do believe that religion functions redemptively at times, and I believe education functions redemptively at times. Certainly, they both help to transform my life. So there are other things that do that. So I don't know how I, I can be a skeptic, which to me is the old classic Greek category of withholding judgment uh, uh, about certain issues. At the same time, not fall prey to the sort of cynicism that m- many of the atheist movement have. And even in some of my campuses, my students have thought of me as the atheist professor. I've never, I've never accepted that label. I don't consider myself an atheist. Now, we're not going to talk about metaphysics today, I don't think. No. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it. But that means that I am able, I think at one level, to talk to people about their religious faith and respect it and write about it and be fair about it and at the same time not practice it. I'm not sure how easy that is to do for some people because they tend to think of religion or non-religion as all of a piece. In other words, it's one or the other and each is mutually exclusive, whereas, in fact, we're just trying to find different ways to explain our lives, find meaning and purpose in our lives, and that happens at an individual level, not at a group level. So I'd rather talk about it in those ways respect people's individual beliefs, write about them, teach about them, and then try to understand. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know any other way to do it as a teacher. There are educators that probably don't agree with that. I don't know what they're doing. We've talked about education, you and I, and I, and I don't know what other people think about that, but it ought to transform. Uh, and to do that, you cannot be an ideologue and you cannot be a cynic. No, no Absolutely. You know, I wonder, I've wondered this, and when I was kind of prepping, going over some of the things that I'd hope we'd discuss, I've, I've wondered, you, you've taught uh, some intro philosophy, logic, those sorts of things, uh, along with the humanities, and yep. which would include, you know, um, uh, other subjects, and then uh, composition and making arguments and, and all. I, I've, I've wondered if... Um, the proliferation online of religion uh, news um, as a medium uh, is is a, a populist expression of the philosophical return to religion. In other words, you know, you're aware that at some point there was this idea that, that religion, you know, maybe following Marx, it was really not much value. It was it, it was just kind of an uh, an opiate sort of thing, and I know that's caricature, but it, we don't have time really to go all the way into that. And then all of a sudden, there's this shift, there's this return. I mean, Paul is hugely popular right now with some uh, with some philosophers, um, n- not certainly in a, a Christian sense, but in that particular turn, it seems like that that uh, that's had some influence, and that would certainly have some academic influences, some educational influences. Do you see any tie-in at all? 
I'd like you to flesh that question out a little bit better. Okay. Um, how about what I'm? How about what I'm thinking is, is I'm wondering if that the impulse and interest in religion runs up and down. That that it's not just exclusively uh, an observational kind of thing, where um, in, in a in a uh, eminently practical sense of seeing how religion adds value or is, uh, provides explanation or uh, prods us to the good, that if underlying that uh, along the way um, in those circles where in the late 70s, 80s, and now it's still kind of still present, where um, there's more of an interest in academia of of religion. You mean you just spent some time at a conference called the End of Religion, which listening to a couple of those wasn't really the end of religion. It was the end of a particular form of religion. I'm just wondering if if you see this interest in religion running up and down, or is it just exclusive exclusively someone who um, is involved in in say. Um, you know, the practical aspect of educating young people and helping them as they try to make sense of the world. Anybody? Yeah, um, let me try. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> this is a hard one. I find interest, I find religion fascinating, and I think people find religion fascinating. You know, I teach world religions too. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, the academic interest is there. But I, I don't think the academic interest is all that good. Uh, quite frankly, and, I'll, and I'll, I'm going to help. I'm, I'm going to make some of your listeners happy because I'm going to reference C.S. Lewis. And uh, I usually when I do that, I make fun of him uh, or make fun of evangelicals for not realize, realizing he's a Catholic. But I'm going to make I'm going to be nice and say something really smart that he said. And he has a little essay called called a, I think it's called a Meditation and Toolshed. You may know it. Uh-huh. And he talks a beam of light that is coming in through the crack in the shed and as he stands and looks at the beam of light he can see the dust motes in that beam of light lit up and that's looking at the thing and then he's the light and then the world is transformed and that's what he ends up calling looking along mm-hmm. so the academic deficiency is almost always the looking at right? Oh, right whereas the looking along requires participation in the practices themselves right and so i think my fascination with religion runs both directions for me for me, I can't speak for everyone, because as someone who practiced it and believed it, I now find myself in a place where I don't believe it. And I think you and I have discussed pretty honestly that it's hard for me now to reconcile some of the things I used to believe with the things that, the way I think the world functions now. That doesn't make me any less fascinated in religion, nor does it make me think that someone who believes things still that I don't has, has, some, has some sort of deficiency. Right. What I think, what I think, we're learning that religion is is just some sort of natural part of what it is to be human. And I'm gonna keep saying that. Not for the atheist who's out there. I'm not saying that worship is wired into us, although some people believe that some form of it is or some religious experience is. But I do think that understanding the world in more comprehensive categories and understanding sort of meta narratives as organizing principles really is really really fundamental to what it is to be human. I don't know how you get up and face the day if you feel like there's no telos at some point, either in your life or your or your parenting or anything else. That doesn't mean there has to be a good God waiting to accept us, but it means there has to be some sort of organizing principle that makes the whole damn thing make sense. And if you don't have that organizing principle, how do you not despair? Right. And so religion in from the secular framework 
make sense to me because at least it's an organizing principle. Now, as a journalist, I want to say, okay, but some organizing principles are bad and dangerous. ISIS, for example, is a bad and dangerous organizing principle. So th these become the sort of critical categorizations that we have to make while at the same time recognizing, and this is, this, this is Leighton and, you know, Leighton Todd, uh, yes. Leighton Coward, my friend in Denver, likes to say the problem with the word religion and this is now my intro, intro lecture to religion classes. Thank you, Leighton. The problem with the word religion is it encompasses things as diverse as throwing a woman's body onto a, a pyre of, you know, a funeral pyre of her husband while she's still alive and selling all that you own and feeding the poor. So how can a word, as Wittgenstein say, would say, be forced to do that much? It doesn't make any sense to call the whole of it religion because now you've asked me to, to, to give everything to this word and expect so much of it, from, the, from, from murdering a woman to selling all I have and, and, and clothing other people. I just, it's, there's no way a word can do that much work. And so we have to do better to talk about individual iterations of that word as opposed to that word as a sort of gigantic organizing principle because it won't work as an organizing principle. Right. How is that? No, that's very good. That, that's very good. That that actually, you know, on a on a uh, a level, um, explains. Uh, and this may not be the correct word, but it, it explains um, how we've got to learn to understand nuance. Yes. And and which requires um, uh, us to do well, us to read better. Um, and that that's one thing that you and I've you know talked about over the years is you know sometimes the, we could help ourselves if we if we just read better and yes. what, what that means at least in, in our conversation has been uh, you know identifying argument identifying logic uh, identifying fallacies so that so that you're not tripped up by making a big deal out of a minor point Correct. Um, you know in you know in 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 you know, biblical exegesis, you, you, you do that. You know, if you're going to make a point you, and you're going to go down to, say, a sentence structure, you're going to pay attention to active verbs. You're not going to, you know, capitalize on a participle um, um, because they function in the argument differently. And right. uh, that's the same with, with what we're, you know, talking about when we're uh, trying to parse out religion as not necessarily an essentialized category, but as a a nuance, it's different nuance expressions. Yes, and so it's why well, is it, go ahead, go ahead. You'll, you'll find the perfect example of this. Uh, the, the last story that I did when we talked about the gun range. Mm -hmm. If you go to the Religion News Service version of the story and read the comments at the bottom, uh, there's a gentleman that gets on there and he begins to harangue uh, Islam because it's now th these are his words, not mine. It's the only religion that specifically calls for its followers to eliminate non-believers. And so, some gentleman, much kinder than I, uh, followed up the comment by listing verse after verse after verse from the Hebrew Bible, which Christians would call the Old Testament, uh, that specifically calls for the Jews, Israelites, Hebrews, whatever you want to call them, in those moments to kill those who were non-believers. Right. It, it, and it's like, okay, the gentleman will follow up by reading those passages, but he already has a grammar in his head that helps him excuse those where his faith is concerned. But he refuses to excuse those where another faith is concerned. 
And so bad, bad reading isn't just about logic and criti- critical thinking. It's about recognizing the lens through which you actually are reading. And if you are going to excuse your own sort of texts uh, under a certain uh, rubric, then how do you not generously apply that rubric to another set of texts when the people that live next to you as your neighbor who worship in a building down the street from yours are saying to you, I know the text says this, but that's not what we take it to mean. When you are saying the exact same thing, I know the text says this, but that's not what we take it to mean. So in that, in that sense, if we don't read generously, if we don't you know, embrace this notion, and Nihad, um, Nihad Awad is the National Director for uh, CARE, Council on the American Islamic Relations, and I talked to him about this last story, and he, he wants to talk, to, to talk about this idea that you cannot define an entire group by not just by the, mi- the minority amongst them that act insane, but also by the texts read from people, here we are again, who are looking at the faith, not looking along the faith. Yeah. And so it's easy for a fundamentalist Christian to look at the Quran and then say things about it because he's looking at it, ignoring what his Muslim neighbors are saying. But that same fundamentalist Christian would never allow an atheist or a skeptic like me to look at the the Hebrew Bible and say, well, it says here where everyone not found to be of the house of God will be slaughtered. He would never accept that that's a part of the grammar of Christianity. So how do you not extend that generosity of exegesis across the aisle? That's a powerful point. I mean, there isn't a day go by that you're not checking into some... uh, illustration of this in 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 a facebook feed it it it, it just happens so often and it just of course is entirely frustrating as well let's let's camp on that for a second because i know as a pastor you have a response to this too and this goes to, to reporting and journalism i promise and you've seen it and i know that you've torn your hair out over it someone you know a christian posts a piece of information on their Facebook feed that takes five seconds on Google to prove false. And then they leave it out there. And as a pastor, that has to make you want to smash your head into a wall. And as a a journalist, if I submitted that as copy for a story, they would never hire me again. And people, and it's not just Christians, people of all different uh, orientations, you know, even in music or or, or whatever, entertainment, they do the same kind of thing. And it's like, we have lost any respect we have for being patient. You remember when the uh, Planned Parenthood story broke? Yes. And one of my my colleagues in the religion reporting business was trying to get a story together for religion news service, and she was being very, very patient about it. She's trying to verify sources. And I told you that day I hadn't found a credible source yet, and I was still working on it, right? Right. And so she she continued to work on it. Three hours into this process, and it was one of your acquaintances, I believe, maybe in the Southern Baptist tribe, that had already begun to share this information, and it was shared hundreds of thousands of times before anybody could begin to verify a source. Now, it proved to be true, right? Right. But two years ago, when Dearborn, Michigan, was accused of, of their, their city council of, of changing the law of the municipality to Sharia, that story was shared 85,000 times on Facebook before anybody had a chance to verify any sources. And guess what? That one was false. Right. And so the Internet, social media, the age we're in, encourages us to move quickly, to share fast, to not verify. 
a pastor that I used to serve on staff with. I, I've actually unfollowed him on Facebook. It's a rare thing for me because he keeps, keeps posting stuff about our president that is patently false. And when I called him on it, he said he put it out there as, as, as to talk about, discuss, and think about. You are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, <laughs> and you are putting lies on the Internet on your Facebook feed that people in church can see, and you're saying that's a call for a discussion. No, you're helping spread lies. So again, how are you not reading the text that you're supposed to be reading that talks about corrupt communication? Yes. And so this, and so for journalists like me or like any of the others I work with, it's very frustrating because people want news right now. Well, you know what? Good news takes time sometimes. And so those shares get ahead of us so fast. And so then once the lie is told, and it's told so many times over, it's hard for anybody to believe the truth if the truth works out to be different. So that's kind of, and I know as a pastor that's been frustrating for you as well to watch people in your congregation probably share that information on Facebook. Well, there 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 isn't any question, and you know as you can imagine, you know you you have to take care with the conversation. But even when you know you present facts, because as you uh, described a while ago, once I get a grammar in my head, I get a particular perspective nailed down. I find some way to dismiss so that I can at least maintain the sensibility that I was conveying, the, the, the feelings I was protecting so that I can still be right, um, right. A, about the sentiment of that piece. You know, you, you, you know this, this is um, uh, maybe a tad off subject, but, but when you mentioned that you know, the shares get way ahead or it gets it's, it's reposted 5,000 times. You know, part of that is that I think I'm going to I think I'm safe and say part of that is something of a narcissistic need to be the one who shares the thing, because if I'm the last one to share the thing, then my shares aren't going to be as many as, say, yours are. And right. I, I think it's, you know, I've, I've honestly found the same thing happen when uh, books are published. You know, we, we, we do all the advanced copy work. We send them out. We send them to reviewers. And, and, and somebody gets it. And before you've had an opportunity to really to, to rest with the book, really to kind of, you know, haggle with it a bit, you're drawing conclusions, making assertions that this is what the author is doing before you've really had time to kind of let it marinate and say something about it. But yeah. if you're the guy who gives the review six months later, nobody's reading it. But you, it's can, gone. That's right. you can really, really misconstrue an author in your race to be the first. It, it seems to be a similar sort of you know, human malady. I mean, you know, and I was guilty of that myself back in the old, the, the Matt Nicolato's days when, um, what was that guy's name that was doing all this book? He's still doing it, I think. Uh, you know, review the books. Oh, Morell. Michael, Michael Morell. Yeah. I think he's still doing it. Mm-hmm. And he sent me that book. And it wasn't even, it wasn't Matt's fault and to, for anybody listening, Matt Nicolato's is now my friend and we get along wonderfully. But in my more curmudgeonly days, um, Morell had put a little blurb in the email he sent out saying, uh, a Christian Kurt Vonnegut. Well, Matt didn't approve that. He never knew anything about it, which I found out later. But as soon as I read that, I kind of lost my mind a little bit. And so my review <laughs> was far less than generous. As a matter of fact, it was, I was kind of an asshole. Uh, so uh, Matt had the sort of courage to contact me and humbly 
and say, hey, I guess you didn't like my book. <laughs> and from that point, we built a friendship. And and, I, and it was a powerful lesson for me in not allowing an expectation not intended by the author even to shape the way I read the book. Of course he's not a Kurt Vonnegut, a Christian Kurt Vonnegut. There is no Christian Kurt Vonnegut. There's only Kurt Vonnegut. Right. There's not, there's not a Muslim Kurt Vonnegut either. There's just Kurt Vonnegut. And so that voice is unique and individual and amazing. So I, it, that you're right. That reading has to come from a place, and I keep I'm gonna keep using the word. It's it's humility. I, I, we 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 are we've lost it, but we've lost it in ways that we don't really always recognize. You know, you, you don't brag, you know, whatever. And I'm tired of talking about athletes and how arrogant they are, whatever. The other kind of humility is recognizing the constant awareness that I may not be hearing something right, I may not be reading something right, I may be making assumptions, and I may not even be able to see from the proper perspective because of who I am and from where I've come. And that's a far different sort of thing than we talk about when we used to talk about humility. But that's the one that's required because the world isn't what it used to be. It's far more confusing. I don't care what anybody says. I teach college. I've got so many different kinds of kids in my class now, uh, and the world is a very deeply confusing place for, for many, many people because these screens, I don't remember who it was that said it, but it's true, we're one screen away from anybody in the world. That's never been the case in the history of the world. And so the New York Times, I believe it was, New York Times Magazine, ran an amazing piece last month about a young Sunday school teacher in upstate upstate New York that got recruited to ISIS through Twitter. Hmm. Imagine that happening 100 years ago. Not not a chance. Not a chance. And so the world is far more complicated, and the results are far more immediate. And as journalists, it's so much more difficult to try to combat that. And I, a guy that you know, because we both read him recently, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me. And I don't know if you saw this, Todd. He was interviewed on Jon Stewart. And there's, a, there's a two-part interview online. Oh, and it's fantastic. And one of the things that Stewart asked, and by the way, it's one of Stewart's best interviews. You have this African-American man who's written this profound sort of book, and you have this Jewish man who's been, you know, that has sort of shaped American news and American culture. And they're having this really heartfelt conversation about seeing the other people, the other person's perspective. And, and you know, the phrase that Coach uses throughout the book is those people who think they're white. Mm-hmm. And, and Stewart says, and this is, the, this is the hardest question to answer, and Coates himself admits there's, there's, he doesn't know the answer yet. And Stuart says, what if ignorance is something you choose? And I thought about that for a second. And as a journalist, I thought, hell no. That, just no. But then the next question was, how hard is it to know what the Confederate flag really stood for? Right? And so that now you have an entire group of people who are choosing ignorance over the truth because the truth is, would require that you reorganize the way you view the world. It's much like someone who converts to a faith or deconverts, right? right? You now acknowledge that one thing is true or untrue, and so you begin to reorganize your world in ways that can often be painful, uh, destructive even. You know, you lose friendships and you lose family members. And so this, as a journalist, when Stuart asked that question, what if ignorance is a choice? And as a pastor, I know you've seen it when you've explained the passage over and over to someone, and they still insist on saying it another way. And at that point, you have to step back and say, as a journalist, as a pastor, as an educator, what are my what are my limitations when someone says, not overtly, but through the grammar of their life, I'm going to choose ignorance? Yes. I don't think you can fix that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I I can I can say I've had those conversations just like what you're describing, where um, most of the time it's it's less really about 
um, maybe explaining a, a, a single passage over and over again and someone choosing different, it, it tends to be really more of the I don't want to think about it kind of ignorance. In yes. other words, you make an introduction of a particular thing and you you know the grammar. The default is, well, you know, that's just something you have to uh, take by faith or that's <laughs> something that you have to, you know, understand uh, in faith. And, and the problem is, is uh, it, it becomes glaringly obvious that really what's at work is, is as I'm saying, no, I've already decided I'm not going to think about that and I'm not going to think about any other further implications. Right. Now, it's one thing, frankly, if that's the posture of, say, a given individual, but... If that's the posture you're going to take and you're then going to talk about being involved in discipleship to Jesus, that is learning his way, that's dangerous. That's 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 that makes ignorance just scary. And uh, and and it's 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 as scary. And and this might be a segue. It's as scary as going back to, you know, the way we were talking about the 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 benefit you give to someone who reads their uh, sacred text in the same way you read your own, you know, um, flipping through the channels, uh, I can't remember, maybe it's Sunday. Uh, it's a show John Quinones is on. It's it's one of those set-up right. hidden camera dealios, you know. And and it had, it, it had a, uh, a you know, it's always in kind of a cafe setting, a, a public setting. And you've got a set of parents, and the child comes in and he brings his girlfriend or brings his girlfriend. I can't remember this particulars because I didn't see the whole thing. And and it was, you know, my girlfriend or my boyfriend is a Muslim. Right. And very vocally and out loud, the parents are protesting. You can't do this. You know what they're like. And, I mean, just the, the normal caricatured vitriol. And, it, and, and, you know, they, they show just these different kind of responses. And most of the time, frankly, there are no responses until in the adjacent booth is a Muslim mother and her young son and daughter. Yeah. And after hearing this for a period of time, she stopped and said, we are not like that. We are we are teaching our children to be good Americans. We are Americans. And I mean, she went on till finally, fortunately, John Quinones, you know, kind of came in. And then, of course, she knew, you know, there's something going on here. But you, you I have to say you hurt for someone like that. Who has been has been so maligned without the humility you described earlier without an uh, openness to a generous reading, without the patience required to say, now, can I get this straight or can I really talk to somebody instead of hear what somebody's telling me about somebody? I, I think that, that uh, um, requires great religion reporting, but yeah. as we've talked about, it requires a choice not to be ignorant too. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. And I can write as many stories as I want about the good Muslims that I know. And there will be Christians who, in many aspects of their life, are good people. For atheists, I think of Bill Maher and Sam Harris right now, 
who in many aspects of their life are good people. And they will be incapable of understanding the idea that individuals are individuals. They're not part of a group. They're actually individuals. Yeah. And so you can't you can't target a group. You can't do it. And how, how many times you can write that story? Because you're not going to get through that. And I don't know what it takes to, to, to get through that. And I and I and I, don't, I suspect that we all have something like that in our head, right? Yes. That there's some sort of there's some sort of lens that we view something from where we are less than generous too. And I know for me, I, I I'm surprised by students all the time, and the very fact that I'm surprised uh, shows that I had uh, at least uh, some sort of bias hiding behind that sort of moment of surprise. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I thought you were going to be ignorant or stupid or racist or whatever, and turns out you're not. So what was that for me? A lot of times in arena, it was country kids. You know, I'd deal with those little redneck kids who come to my class. And I, and I had to finally acknowledge that I just expected them to be ignorant and not very nuanced and not very complex in their thinking. And it turns out it just doesn't matter where they were born. You know, they were right. born in the country. And if they'd been born in the city, they would have talked differently, but they'd been just as smart. Yeah, and so yeah. those sorts of things are hiding inside us. Uh, and as a journalist, you know, we have to work through that too because I have to talk to people all the time with whom I disagree vehemently. And how do you conduct that conversation and interview not disrespectfully, but in a way that gives that person a chance to say what they want to say and to hear that fairly. Now, there are times, and this is the ignorance of journalism, and I'm going to transition a second here. The ignorance of journalism sometimes is that in those glory days where there were editors that had gigantic religion sections, those editors didn't know very much about religion either. Hmm. I remember one guy, it may have been Terry Mattingly, saying, you know, he was once assigned. No, it was the guy that used to write Orlando. Uh, right. He wrote the Simpsons, the Simpsons Gospel book. It'll come to me. Anyway, he said that an editor one time assigned him to go do a story in the Episcopals. Well, you know, there's no, <laughs> no such thing as the Episcopals. And I've had editors tell me to go back and get the other side of the story from the Catholic Church. It's like, you, you know, they're, they're Catholic. There really is no other side to the story. There is. That's, that's they said that's what that's that's but well, what do the what does the other side say which other side the protestants this is not that yeah that's not the way reporting works for religion so there's some of that ignorance there too so so when i talk to someone like i talked to that young man that owned the gun store and he starts talking about jihadis practicing on his gun range and he talks about how and here's the line oh the line the line I, we haven't discussed this yet i meant to talk to you about this the other day and I, i've seen it twice or three times now in the here's what they're saying these days the Quran says, full stop, and I've read it, full stop, that you should be able to kill people who don't believe. Now, that middle section is a damn lie. You can't find 20% of Christians who've read their entire Bible. I know they haven't read their entire Bible and the entire Quran. That's a lie. And so now they're just like adding this credibility to themselves. And so this gentleman says this to me. I've read the whole Quran and I know what it says. And it's like, let's assume that you have read the whole Quran. I've read the whole Bible several times. I know people who've read it more times than me, and we still don't understand what parts of it mean. And so you, you feel like you get to say this. So how do you talk to those people in a way that doesn't automatically bias the way you write about them, right? And so when, I, when I'm writing and I sit down and I'm doing one of these very sensitive sorts of things, I have to figure out how to end the story in such a way that I don't, by choosing a quote or a line that I think is beautiful and delicious, somehow taint the story such that, here's the deal, I try to be objective all the way through, but what I really want you to know is this guy's a freak, right? Mm-hmm. And you can do that very subtly if you're not careful. And so you have to really think that through. 
So this idea of treating each other not just with respect, because there's some people that don't deserve respect. Let's be honest about that. But the views of people, people of faith do. So if I talk to someone like this young man, who, by the way, called himself a Christian constitutionalist, should I then assume that all Christian constitutionalists are lunatics like this person? That seems grossly unfair. So then the reporter's job becomes to sort out, and here's the this is the most difficult part and the part my students struggle with every semester, and my editors do too, to, to sort out what does this individual believe over against what his tribe actually believes. And here's what I think. And if you tell, if you allow someone to self-identify, to say I'm a Christian, and if that becomes the entire sort of definition, we're in deep, deep trouble. Mm-hmm. If you allow people to say I'm a Muslim, and that person flies a plane into a building, and his sort of self-description or self-declaration becomes the entire definition, we're in deep trouble. Because if there are no standards of behavior, no practices in which you must engage, no beliefs in which you must embrace, all it is is this sort of American, Western, sort of, you know, atomized, atomistic, actually, uh, sort of self-definition, then, then it doesn't mean anything at all. I can believe anything I want and call myself a Christian. I can call myself a Christian today. It would be absurd, but I could do it. And if we allow that self-definition is all that matters, then you'd have to agree as a journalist that I'm a Christian. That's absurd on its face. So when journalists sit down after 9-11 and write Muslim terrorists, no, no journalist I know would have ever put the two words Christian terrorists together. It was absurd. And so we have to find ways to sort out who are you versus your tribe, and how does your tribe have vastly different sort of definitions and practices than what you say you have. And that has become a task for this new world that we're in, and I don't know that we're doing a great job with it yet. No, there was a funny illustration of what you're talking about, though. Nice segue to John Oliver. Woo! Because in his recent um, episode, um, (laughs) he took great pains to say there are churches that are like this, and then there are churches that are like that. And we're talking about this group and not that group. I I thought he did a very good job of doing just what you're describing. He wasn't he wasn't identifying them all together. He was saying this particular thing. And then you discover that while he has a great disdain for that particular group, he's really hammering the IRS. And, and which was almost awesome. But, you know, the genius of that, I thought about this later. The genius of that was he put that up front. Yes. If he did if he did an entire story about churches doing this, and at the end, as a qualification, said, "Now there are some churches. Everything you'd heard up to that point, if you were a Christian, would have been colored by the fact that he seemed to be conflating one tribe with another tribe." Exactly. So by putting that up front and saying, "Look, I know some of you out there are this type of thing. You have relatives that are this type of thing. Then we're going to talk about this type, not your type." That was genius uh-huh. because it allowed the person. The sort of, if not illusion, or if not, you know, genuine sense of separation, at least the illusion of separation, where they were like, okay, he's not talking about me, so we, I can listen now. And I thought that was the smartest thing he did that entire segment, which, by the way, is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, it, it, it was it was amazing. It, uh, and you know, in and in keeping with with that, the where we where we were going to get before we close up here is. Um, for those listening, I've asked Greg if he would uh, do a um, guest series for the the blog uh, on logical fallacies. Because if we're going to get on here and we're going to talk about um, a problem, 
and we're going to make some maybe intimations of maybe how we could take different postures. I also think we ought to offer maybe a way to uh, uh, do a better job in reading and in making our arguments. So since Greg has taught logic, I asked if he'd do a series on logical fallacies, and um, I'm not going to put any pressure on Greg in terms of timing, but I just want you, listener, to know to kind of keep watching because we'll, we'll post those as, as we get opportunity. But hopefully they'll be uh, occasioned or occasions where uh, you could maybe come along and read one of those Facebook shares or you can read someone's argument about this group or that group. And especially in, a, in a, an odd political season, um, it's going to be really important to sift through some really, really awful uh, reporting and writing on these important subjects. So, uh, uh, Greg, anything you would want to kind of, uh, as a preface for that? Uh, uh... Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think you entered it pretty well there. I, you know, when I teach, I can, I'll, it's not just logic. I mean, we do, when we do comp two, which is writing argument, really, we're in Oklahoma. I'm sure it's supposed to be that way, sort of all over the place. But we introduce the logical fallacies because it's not so much that I don't want them in your paper. I don't want them in your paper. But I also don't want you reading something and not being able to recognize them. And so I think your idea is good in terms of Facebook. I mean, the Facebook posts are fantastic, but the, the sort of most verdant place for these things is clearly the comments section when news stories about religion or politics. Uh, and so what I hope to do with that is find some of those more outlandish and, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is unintentional humor. Uh, and so some of those, you know, from our less um, reflective can and, uh, get those out there with, you know, sort of a funny way and kind of a sad, often sort of profound way of illustrating what these sort of fallacies are. There are typically seven major ones we talk about. And so there are two or three big ones, especially when it comes to religion and politics. So we'll start with those. So I'll do, I don't know how many you want me to do, but I'll do all seven, but I can probably do those in like two big posts and then one small one for the rest of them. But I would love to do that with Facebook feeds and with uh, comment sections on uh, news stories because that is where, if you're not in a college class or an organized structured system like academia, you don't often come across those moments of genuine uh, conflict and you know my classes and Todd's been in a couple of them uh, I don't allow classes it doesn't matter what I'm teaching we're going to have an argument uh, and uh, that includes comp one and so because the idea here is that you're supposed to encounter ideas that are unlike your own and be able to sift through them not just to hear not to be respectful not to all those things are important but you know how do those how do those beliefs challenge your beliefs? How do your beliefs respond to those beliefs and how can you recognize what a good argument looks like versus a bad argument? That, I think, is the most important part of, for me, COP2. It helps us be better readers, and I think, because that's why I'm an educator, better humans. So that's kind of think of what we'll focus on. Uh, I may go back and pull up one of those we talked about earlier with poor President Obama. That man, I guarantee you, when he gets out of office, he's just going to go somewhere for six months and sit on a beach and just use an entire unbroken stream of profanity and cigarettes. <laughs> That will be that will be his plus presidential vacation. <laughs> no question in my mind. That's good. Well, I think that sounds great, Greg. I think I think any way you want to put together would be perfect. And 
Um, I we're winding up. I, I try to keep from taking advantage of good graces and time, and and appreciate the hour you've given. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I certainly expect we'll have opportunities to broach other subjects on future uh, podcast shows. Always happy to, sir. So, um, those of you who listen, I hope you uh, find some things of value uh, across the board, uh, not just in terms of thinking about religion, but but uh, thinking about what kind of human beings we ought to be and learn that uh, we have lots of folks we can partner with out there uh, as we work to influence our world for good. So, um, Greg, till next time, man. Thanks. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening. Hope you found something very helpful in the work that you do. Maybe if you're curious about what pastors do, you pop by to listen. Maybe this will give you some help of some of the things that we think about from time to time. Hey, do me a favor. Uh, Take some time and subscribe. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, your favorite podcast catcher. Or if you uh, want to listen online, you can visit the website. You'll find uh, a a player there. And uh, go over to iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and uh, give us a rating. It always helps us uh, to get found. Hey, until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with ToddLittleton.net, home of Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Remember, you can find us at ToddLittleton.net, thepastortheologian.com, and thepastortheologian.net. We look forward to more conversations in the future. 